Dealing with mess can feel like an impossible task. It just keeps coming back. Well, today we're brought to you by the organization experts, IKEA. IKEA knows we all have those areas in our homes consumed by mess, whether it be that chair that collects all your clothes or the monstrous pile under your bed. That's why IKEA makes affordable wardrobe organizers, underbed storage, and other solutions to help you easily take back that chair and conquer the mess monster under your bed. Visit IKEA to explore more. You can't afford mess, so IKEA makes storage affordable. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. The Bowery Boys, episode 258, Tales from Tribeca. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. Today we're going to spend some time in one of our favorite Manhattan neighborhoods. That would be Tribeca, a goofy name for a very beautiful and historic neighborhood. Goofy name, but not quite as goofy as that other neighborhood show we just completed, Greg, on Dumbo. Yeah, this is kind of a companion show to that as they both have these real estate constructed names and have similar parallels in their history. I find Tribeca to be a rather mysterious neighborhood. A lot of people don't know its history. You say Soho or Greenwich Village and people have a certain idea that pops into their head. But there's something hidden about Tribeca. Its history encompasses all aspects of usage, from elegant residence and industrial use to being a transportation hub and even a nightlife destination. Right, so we have a lot of ground to cover here. Well, before we get started, I think that it's important to just define what it even is. Where is it in Manhattan? How do you define it? What does it even stand for? Well, so Tribeca stands for Triangle Below Canal. So at least we know the canal is involved. One absolute assurance is that the northern border is Canal Street. And then there's general consensus that it heads all the way west to the water or to West Street. Most of the eastern border is Broadway. But then there is some disagreement over the southern border of Tribeca. It can go all the way down to Chambers or Murray Street or Vesey Street. It's generally considered that the World Trade Center area is, you know, south of it. So yes, south, yes. Of, south of the area. So, so there's a few blocks kind of in between that are transitional blocks, if you will, between <laughs> Tribeca and the Financial District. But City Hall is not in Tribeca. It's absolutely not. No. These, uh, these blocks are dominated by lovely former factories and warehouses, most of which were constructed between the 1850s and the 1930s. And many of these older structures from the 19th century were constructed with marble, sandstone, or cast iron facades. And nearly all of them have been converted on the ground level into stores and restaurants and up on the upper floors into upscale lofts and apartment spaces. But like the word Dumbo, which referred to this Brooklyn neighborhood across the water, Tribeca is also a modern invention and wasn't even used before the late 1960s. 
the name is a modern invention, and that explains why it's kind of hard for us sometimes to get our head around what Tribeca is today. And throughout its history, it wasn't seen as one unified neighborhood no. at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a bustling area uh, in the southern part around Washington Market near today's Trade Center. There was a classy residential neighborhood surrounding St. John's Park up near Canal Street. Uh, There was a busy textile district and dry goods and mercantile districts west of Broadway. And then over by the waterfront, there were warehouses and busy piers. So all of these were kind of like separate neighborhoods with their own distinct functions and, and characters that today, taken together, make up Tribeca. So it's a patchwork neighborhood mm-hmm. with a lot of different stories. And so how we're approaching it today is a little kind of a Whitman sampler of all of these various areas, these various stories that you are about to hear Absolutely. are from these little places. I just hope that I get the chocolate-covered cherry. <laughs> Tom, there's a lot of fruit and vegetables on its way here in the show, so just Uh, hold on to your hat. Fine, so let us be brief. (laughs) What was in this particular area during the Dutch period, during New Amsterdam, and then into the colonial period? Well, of course, during uh, the New Amsterdam days and then English era days later, New York was centered and concentrated down in the southern tip of Manhattan. So this area up here was really just mostly rolling farmland. The Hudson Riverfront was actually much farther inland than it is today. The The Hudson River, the North River, as it was known. And then most of the area in the northern part of today's Tribeca was pretty wet. The ground was low and wet, especially as you got closer to that big freshwater pond, the Collect Pond, that was farther east over by today's Center Street. It doesn't sound like it was the most useful acreage of land here on Manhattan Island. Well, people were using it. I mean, it was, for the most part, farmland, and for the most part, controlled really by just two big landowners. The eastern section was controlled by the Rutgers family, who uh, bought up the area in the 1720s. And when father, patriarch Anthony Rutger died, it passed down to his daughter, Elsie, and her husband, Leonard Lispinard, uh, in 1746. During these decades, the Lispinard and Rutgers families were were attempting to drain the the, the land and make it more usable as farmland. Uh, But that would be a process that would take decades. And so this area would remain kind of swampy and would take on the name, especially this northern section of Lispinard's Meadows. That is the eastern portion of today's Tribeca, Mm -hmm. right? So then what about the western portion, the one nearest the waterfront? Well, back in the Dutch days, much of that was farmland that was granted to a farmer named Rolof Janssen in 1636 to farm. But the very next year, he passed away, and the the land then was given over to his widow, Annika Jans, to take care of. She would run it as a farm for the next 26 years until she died in 1663. And this was a giant parcel of land. That would then pass through various different hands, and then under English rule, Queen Anne would hand this huge swath of land, about 212 acres, over to Trinity Church in 1705. This was intended to kind of bolster the, the church's finances uh, so that they could make a little money off of, you know, leasing it off to farmers. So from this date, the church then became a landlord. And a landowner. They would lease it over to people to develop. But, but this entire 
parcel of land really from down around today's Fulton Street all the way up the western side of the island to Christopher Street would be known as Church Farm. So Lisbonard's Meadow Mm -hmm. and Church Farm. So these names are still hovering around the area of Tribeca today, aren't they? Absolutely. But just wait, Greg, there's more. Lisbonard Street, Church Street. Church was named after Trinity. But some of the streets were also named after Leonard Lisbonard's children, including his son Leonard, his son Thomas, and his son Anthony. Unfortunately, Anthony would lose his street name to Worth. It's just so exciting to see old ancient history still embedded into the street names themselves here. Oh, yeah. And in fact, you know, Trinity didn't just stop a church. They also named a street after St. Paul's Chapel. That became Chapel Street, which would later be renamed West Broadway. Um, And then meanwhile, Trinity named streets after some of their biggest congregants, their most esteemed parishioners. Those included John Chambers, James Duane, Joseph Reed, Benjamin Moore. I like thinking of them all sitting together in church, you know? Um, and and don't, don't think that the vestry itself was overlooked. They got their own street, Vestry Street. It's like a row of pews or a row of streets. And speaking of rows of streets, um, it's important to also point out that when these streets would be developed in the late 18th century, early 19th century, there would be really two different uh, street grids. So Trinity's went parallel to the water, and the first street that they laid uh, was Greenwich Street, which they called First Street uh, originally in 1761 when they laid it out. Uh, But it would be renamed Greenwich Street for its destination, the village of Greenwich that was located not too far away. So their streets would run toward Greenwich. Meanwhile, uh, Lisbonard, And Rutgers streets would be oriented toward Broadway. So they would take on a different orientation, which would result when they would sort of mash up against each other into some really interesting triangles. And let's not forget a rather pivotal street to the history of this neighborhood, Canal Street, to its northern border, because that was constructed to drain collect pond, this filthy body of water, which had become a nuisance by the early 19th century. Right. So around 1805, uh, they built this ditch um, and covered it over. They didn't name it Ditch Street. (laughs) Thank goodness. (laughs) (laughs) But rather Canal. And yes, Collect Pond would be filled in with landfill improperly around 1811. So when did these streets, now mostly controlled by Trinity Church, when did people start moving in in significant numbers here? Well, by the late 1700s and early 1800s, you see uh, the development of single-family dwellings, federal-style homes, a few of which are still around today. We mentioned one in our Underground Railroad show at 2 White Street. That's right. And not too far from that, um, up in the northern section of today's Tribeca, Trinity laid out a, a square Uh, in the late 1700s that was based loosely on the upscale residential developments that one finds in London. And this was up near Canal and Varick Streets. In 1803, Trinity built a chapel here on the eastern side of today's Varick Street, um, facing this square, hoping that the the presence of this beautiful Georgian-style chapel that was designed after St. Martin's in the Field uh, in London, beautiful structure— the hope that this elegant church would draw residents up to this neighborhood. 
Well, shortly after it opened, Trinity then formally laid out the square across the street from it, which it called Hudson Square. And although it was officially named Hudson Square, it it would be informally known as St. John's Park. Sounds very formal, very English, perhaps. It was a private park, wasn't it? That's right. And it, it was maintained in the end by the residents who constructed their upscale homes, residences around uh, the park, and they they had loan access to the park. So a little bit like Gramercy Park today. Right. This was the first private park in the city, surrounded by 64 lots um, that were initially just leased out for 99 years by Trinity Church, who attached to them, by the way, very strict building codes about what could or could not be constructed. Uh, you didn't want to overpower the church. It had a beautiful, you know, the church had a be- beautiful spire reaching over 210 feet in the air. They, they set standards for what could be developed here. People didn't really like those 99-year leases um, because, you know, it was expensive to construct a house. And what were you going to do after 99 years? Uh, So development in the early 1800s stalled until Trinity finally gave up and offered these lots for sale, which changed the equation, um, attracted enough families to construct their homes here that it filled up. And by the 1830s and 1840s, St. John's Park was the prime address. It was the upscale neighborhood in this part of town. Although that would quickly be uh, displaced by newer developments that would happen around newer squares. (laughs) Washington Square, for example. But for now, Mm -hmm. this is the place to be in 1830. Now, I don't mean to interrupt this idyllic picture that you've just painted of of like proper little St. John's Church, Mm -hmm. but just a little south of here, and I mean just like three blocks away, the area is gaining a more unsavory reputation for in the 1830s, this was also a brothel district. Oh, right. Over on Thomas Street, Mm -hmm. right? I think we talked about this in the Helen Jewett murder mystery? Yeah, she was a prostitute who was murdered. Uh, this crime put an unflattering spotlight onto the area. Prostitution would remain a presence here well into the mid-19th century, with Old Chapel Street, ironically enough, receiving the worst reputation. George Templeton Strong described Chapel Street as, quote, full of all sorts of sits and cockneys and pert nurses and perter misses and dirty loafers and Corinthians. <laughs> And was it because of this reputation that they renamed Chapel Street? (laughs) To to West Broadway? It was one of the reasons, yes. But despite being a relatively small area, it would soon, this, what we call Tribeca today, would be pivotal to a wide number of industries. Big picture here. (laughs) Of other industries. Of other, not just prostitution, of other more legal industries. Um, Big picture here. As the city grows north throughout the 19th century, this neighborhood gets left behind as a desirable residential area, which puts this nice little St. John's Park area at risk. Mm -hmm. And Trinity Church and other landowners begin selling or leasing to businesses. Now, I'm arranging this next section Uh, into three parts. Things are about to be shaken up by food, fire, and freight. The three Fs. So let's start with food. Let's start with food, yes. Beginning in a little outdoor market that dates to the colonial era that was called the Bear Market, located on Greenwich Street between Fulton and Vesey. That is the land 
actually across the street from the World Trade Center today. Slightly south of Tribeca. Slightly south of it, right. But by 1813, this would evolve into a larger market building called Washington Market. And at this time, Greenwich Street is is basically right up against the water. Pretty much, yeah. So that must have been very convenient for the market. Well, I mean, the, the market was hugely successful. Pretty soon, the vendors of Washington Market, who would, you know, they would rent spots from the city to, to sell their wares here at the Washington Market, would spill then into the surrounding streets. And then the buildings themselves all around Washington Market and in our district today, Tribeca, what we're speaking about all of these buildings would soon serve the purposes of the market. Now you divided this into three F's. This is under food. Food, yes, so primarily sell- food. Yes. They're selling food at the market. Uh-huh. How would one go about even buying a food? Like, would I, as a resident of old New York, go there to buy food? <laughs> well, it's to buy it's, groceries. It seems like a, a weird question to ask, but I mean, they didn't have supermarkets back then. They didn't have one-stop shopping in the way that we have today. Most of the customers at the Washington Market were actually those who bought wholesale, or as they say in the French, de, <laughs> de gros, um, mm-hmm. where we get the word grocer. Oh. <laughs> so it would be grocers, food sellers, and later hotels and restaurants. They would all come to these markets. They would all come to Washington Market. Uh-huh. There would be six total in the city, but Washington Market would be the largest. And could I tick off all the items on my grocery <laughs> list here? Did, or did they specialize in something? Well, if this is what you're... Well, here's a list of, of, of random items that they sold from the historic designation report. So if this is on your grocery list, then you're in luck. Quote, a wide variety of foods were sold at the market, including imported cheeses, okay. quail, squabs, wild duck, swordfish, frog legs, Pompanos, codfish tongues and cheeks, and venison and bear steaks. In other words, <laughs> Saturday night. And things got started at the market early. It's funny that like 175 years in the future, these very streets would still be packed with people from nightclubs just getting started at two or three in the morning. But here in the early 19th century, vessels filled with wares to sell at the market. And by the way, I think that you can still buy quail and cod cheeks in in Tribeca today. Cod cheeks. Codfish cheeks. Didn't you say cod cheeks? It's cod. Yeah, codfish cheeks. (laughs) And venison. But two or three in the morning, that seems like they were exaggerating a little. I mean, why, why would you have to get there so early to set up? Surely people weren't shopping at three in the morning. No, it would be open for shoppers by around five or six, but they had to get there early because there were so there was so much traffic on the Hudson River. You know, because of the Erie Canal, there's so many ships during the day that food shipments were only allowed to come in in these late night hours. And it wouldn't be just food either. As we mentioned in our book, Adventures in Old New York, nice. in 1851... An upstate farmer named Mark Carr chopped down a bunch of fir trees and brought them into the city and sold them with his sons and created essentially the first Christmas tree market. So that was a new tradition that was created here at Washington Market. And this market, literally the the marketplace structure Mm -hmm. only took up one block here. 
but obviously, all of this business and and bustle would spill out into the surrounding streets. Yeah, uh, almost immediately, all the streets south of St. John's Park, so essentially the streets between St. John's Park all the way down to the market on the west side, they were all soon built up with wholesale businesses that would bring food in, like the market, but others would process the food in plants and factories here and then send it back out to sale. So it was essentially, thanks to Washington Market, this area became a food manufacturing mecca. Imagine the smells. (laughs) All that quail being processed. All that quail, all that venison and bear steaks. But wait, let's get back to the list. So you've covered food. Food, yes. Now next was fire. Yes. So all these new businesses were connected to the piers and also to Washington Market. That's on the west side. But today's border of Tribeca, as you mentioned, is also Broadway. In the 1830s and 40s, while all this delicious food was coming into Manhattan via the west side, Broadway was an area that was vibrant with Fancy, luxurious hotels, popular theaters. Soon, many great restaurants would be on Broadway as well. Mm. And this would, of course, stretch north all the way up to Houston. and would be a destination for the finer things in New York. Things, though, came to a very terrifying point in December of 1835. Oh, right, of course, the Great Fire of 1835. Yeah, on December 16th of 1835, in fact, the blaze wiped out 17 city blocks south of City Hall and east of Broadway. This would be the the burn district. The burn, yes, the burned district and was New York's old dry goods district. Dry goods do burn easily (laughs) after all. Yes, unfortunately. And just to remind the listener... And perhaps myself again. How do you define dry goods? It's such a vague term. Yeah, I mean, and it it does encompass kind of a lot of things that are dry Mm -hmm. as opposed to wet, you know, not kerosene or alcohol. But in essence, you're usually referring to textiles, ready to wear clothes, clothing supplies, cloaks, blankets. Cloaks. Cloaks are a dry good. (laughs) So all of these places, unfortunately, burnt down. But the business... Businesses, you know, survive. Like the businessmen needed to reopen in other places. They needed to look for other areas of town to rebuild. It made sense to find new homes for their businesses near the places where New Yorkers sold clothes. And by the 1840s, that was Broadway. In 1848, A.T. Stewart, the department store king, opened his Marble Palace which is considered the first department store in America, opened it at Broadway and Chambers Street. And soon after Stewart, other stores began flocking to to Broadway all the way north up to Houston Street. So the dry goods industry wants to move closer to the stores. Does that mean that they moved into today's Tribeca? Yes, so so Tribeca and, of course, Soho, as we mentioned in our Soho show, they moved there as well. This area soon became populated with store and loft-style buildings, which were essentially businesses that manufactured an individual item. Let's say cloaks, because there were actually several cloak makers Mm -hmm. here. Speaking of cloaks. They would would manufacture and store the cloaks in the upper floors. On the ground floor, they would 
sometimes sell that product or occasionally that that building owner would lease it to uh, another opportunity. So much like today's Tribeca, when you're walking around and you see stores on the ground floor level of almost every single one of those buildings, yeah. they were also stores uh, back when they were constructed in the 1850s, right, and 60s, right, and 70s. Right, back in the mid-19th century. It's great because when you think of New York in the in textiles, mm-hmm. you kind of think the, the Lower East Side, for instance, which has a great tradition in the garment industry. And of course, the garment district which would situate up in midterm, but this would actually predate all of that. And of course, not everybody was manufacturing textiles or clothing. Some were also importing fabric or importing clothing Mm -hmm. or wholesaling and selling to other stores. Because of those various types of buildings that have been constructed here, because of that marketplace, and because of these influences of Broadway retail, all of this would create... An extraordinary diversity in architecture from one corner to the other in this area. Tribeca is a marvel of surviving mid and late 19th century architecture. Everything from market buildings with those like distinctive awnings, Mm -hmm. which you'll see near the waterfront, to a lot of Beaux-Arts finery that is reflected in some of those department stores and it's reflected here on these streets as well. Throw these buildings onto these two kind of competing grids, one smashing into the other, kind of creating wonky triangles everywhere at all these factors. And I think it makes Tribeca one of the most beautiful and different neighborhoods in New York City. You have tons of beautiful alleyways and side streets. You have cute triangle parks everywhere. You've got Dwayne Park. You have Tribeca Park. And there's even a park named James Bogardus Park. Yeah, Bogardus, so named because James Bogardus, his signature architectural innovation, defines many of the blocks in Tribeca. For he was an early adopter and developer of cast iron architecture. Now, for more information on that, I'm going to direct you to our story of Soho show. But the northern area of Tribeca in particular is a a bit of a spillover of that dominant warehouse style that you'll find in Soho. I think it's funny because before we tackled this subject for the show, Mm -hmm. I think I had assumed that most of Tribeca was actually cast iron architecture. Uh, And certainly when you walk around, you see many of the same kind of detailing, Mm -hmm. uh, many of these, you know, the blocks that seem very similar, uh, beautiful five-story structures with the intricate facades, but it turns out that only some of those are cast iron, many are sandstone, many are uh, marble facades, and some of those marble or sandstone actually incorporate cast iron into their bottom bay entrances and windows. It's an incredibly creative use of materials here in Tribeca. It's, It's a big mashup. And the fact that some of the cast iron is actually painted to look like marble or painted mm-hmm. to look like sandstone <laughs> only complicates things further. So um, so you know what would be even better if all of those old townhouses that were built around St. John's Park, if they were still there to kind of add to the glorious architectural richness of this neighborhood? Only a few of them still survive, but most of the others were ripped down and replaced by what? Warehouses? Well, let's. We went through food, fire, freight is number three. So, all of these industries that had that were constructed around here, they needed improved ways to get their products in and out of the district. 
things here at St. John's, you know, they were, you know, even with all these massive changes going on around, many wealthy landowners still held on here until 1851, when Cornelius Vanderbilt constructed his Hudson River Railroad all the way down the side of Manhattan. In 1866, by this point, most of those wealthy residents had moved on to other wealthy neighborhoods in New York. There were much bigger and better ones, including over on Fifth Avenue. Trinity and the landowners Mm -hmm. sold that park to Vanderbilt for $1 million. He then leveled the property and most of the buildings around it and then built an impressive train station, which they called St. John's Freight Terminal. Despite the fact that St. John's Chapel, Mm -hmm. of which the area was named... Still facing the square. (laughs) Yeah, it was faced into the square, faced into the freight terminal. Its parishioners watched as a new idol was erected on the top of the freight terminal, the image of Cornelius Vanderbilt himself in statue form. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Can you imagine a business leader with that kind of tacky audacity? <laughs> with that kind of ego? Well, anyway, the freight terminal inspired construction of further properties around here, spilling out into the streets. Now, these little streets that were named after old church vestrymen mm-hmm. now were filled with warehouses, lumber yards, glue factories, sugar refineries, spice mills. And one business that I found especially interesting. An express mail business started in 1850, uh, started by two men named Henry Wells and William Fargo. As as in Wells Fargo? <laughs> well, that was their other company that they would start later. This express mail business was named American Express. Mr. Wells and Mr. Fargo first started American, American Express? Yes. Now, So I actually pay two of their businesses every month? I'm sorry about that, but it's true. Now, how did you deliver mail back then? You did it by horseback, obviously. So the same year that Trinity sold at St. John's Park, American Express opened their stables here at 157 Hudson Street. It is a glorious building and it has a distinct bulldog logo on either side. But those stables are still in use today. They're now residences for humans. (laughs) Who probably write monthly checks to Wells Fargo. So long story short, because the area receives so much of the food consumed in New York, it it actually has a few nicknames by this point. Uh, some, Some called it the Butter and Egg District, for one. To me, it's more poignantly nicknamed The Farm. Which harkens back to Church Farm back in the Trinity days. It has a lot of different meanings, Mm -hmm. and because there's so many fruits and vegetables coming through here as well, that it was a veritable farm. It's also a nod to the future, for this would be the center of food distribution in New York well into the 20th century. And we'll watch Tribeca go from farm to fabulous after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC. 
hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Dealing with mess can feel like an impossible task. It just keeps coming back. Well, today we're brought to you by the organization experts, IKEA. IKEA knows we all have those areas in our homes consumed by mess, whether it be that chair that collects all your clothes or the monstrous pile under your bed. That's why IKEA makes affordable wardrobe organizers, underbed storage, and other solutions to help you easily take back that chair and conquer the mess monster under your bed. Visit IKEA to explore more. You can't afford mess, so IKEA makes storage affordable. So, Greg, one thing that I find kind of surprising about Tribeca in the first half of the 20th century is that it really remained pretty stable, as a neighborhood, what we've already set up here, you know, and not just the stables, right? Not the <laughs> not just the American Express stables. Um, the other things we were talking about: Washington Market, the freight, the freight terminal, uh, industry piers, warehouses. These fixtures of the neighborhood continued for decades. You know, this neighborhood wasn't cutting edge; it wasn't cool, um, except for the cooling warehouses. <laughs> yeah, but it, it was bustling. And much of the activity was taking place in structures that had been built in the later part of the 19th century. And part of that has to do with the strength of the Hudson River piers during this period, which people tended to use more in the 20th century than on the East River. Uh, But there are some cosmetic changes to the neighborhood uh, that happened rather quickly. Yeah, cosmetic is one way to put it. For in the 1910s already, there was a plan underway for the widening of Varick Street. 
This is a subject I have been waiting 10 years, Greg, <laughs> to talk about. This is Tom's pet subject and has wanted to do it as a whole show for, for years, but we'll at least get to preview it. And if you like it, we'll, we'll, see, we'll see what we can do. Every time I ask Greg, can we please do Varick Street and 7th Avenue South, he kind of rolls his eyes and, you know, orders another drink. And <laughs> I hit pause for another year but here we are yes. um it's the 19 teens remember the subway opened up in 1904 but about 10 years later they realized that the IRT which at that time had stopped at 14th street um on the west side at 7th avenue well it it stopped there because 7th avenue stopped at 11th street so 7th avenue continued for a couple blocks but then it stopped because it ran into some problems with the west village street grid right the jumble of of streets didn't allow for 7th avenue to go all the way down south and because the irt was constructed as we just talked about with the cut and cover mm-hmm. uh, technique you know there wasn't a 7th avenue to drill under because it didn't exist so there was no subway. But in the 19-teens, there was a plan here to extend the IRT farther south uh, from 14th or 11th Street in this case, down to Varick Street, which went really only up to about Carmine Street, I believe. So uh, there were many blocks in which 7th Avenue didn't exist. So they had to drill down 7th Avenue South to meet Varick Street uh, and in doing so, of course, they blasted away uh, a straight line. Look at this on a map, listener, and you'll see what I'm talking about. It's kind of amazing how they connected it. Um, but in doing so, they they created these odd shapes, odd triangular blocks. Buildings were just kind of like sliced right on an angle. And then having connected 7th Avenue to Varick Street, they would soon be able to construct the 7th Avenue subway line underneath it, but first they would need to widen the whole thing in order to get the uptown and the downtown sides of the subway line. So long story short, as it pertains to Tribeca, Varick Street needed to be widened by 35 feet, pushing 35 feet east of where it had stood for a long time because it would take the IRT line underneath it until it got to West Broadway, where it would then continue further south. And this meant the demolition, uh, wholesale demolition of some buildings, but others were just kind of clipped. So we can look at a couple buildings in particular. It takes us actually back to St. John's Freight Terminal or Mm -hmm. St. John's Chapel, which had the unfortunate circumstance of sitting on the east side of Varick Street, looking over now at that depot station. Now, by this time in the 19-teens, the chapel was actually no no longer even in in service. It had closed uh, in 1908, but it was still standing. It was majestic. It was owned still by Trinity, and they were trying to figure out what to do with it. But in 1914, you know, the city planners were pushing ahead with the widening of Eric Street. So essentially, uh, if you widened the street but kept the church where it was standing, part of the church would be sticking out into Varick Street. Trinity and the city announced in 1914 that they would give it two years to study and figure out ways to keep it. 1916, you know, as the subway construction is rolling along, they they hit the snooze button one more time. They said, we're going to give it two more years to try to figure out a solution or find a buyer who's going to be able to actually save this church and put it back into use. But alas, in October of 1918, 100 years ago, St. John's Chapel was demolished. 
an article the day after the demolition on October 6, 1918 in the New York Times noted um, that, quote, the hands and pendulum of the big clock in the steeple were removed to the borough president's office as souvenirs of the old architectural landmark. An offer of $100 was made by an old New Yorker who attended the chapel in its palmy days for the religious painting at the back of the altar, but on examination, it was found to be painted on the wall. Another architectural loss for New York City. But I think you, you said a couple buildings that were lost that you were going to mention. Well, lost or just slimmed down, because there's another famous example uh, that happened just one block south of here at the fire station at the southeast corner of Varick and North Moore Street. Uh, this is a beautiful Beaux-Arts firehouse that was constructed in 1903 for the Hook and Ladder Company Number 3. Now, it originally had two front doors, right? Two to, garages, to hand, right? Two garages uh-huh. to handle mm-hmm. two engines. <laughs> but when this stretch of Varick was widened and 35 feet was cut east, it sliced off half of the station and cut the firehouse down to a single garage door. So the building was virtually cut in half. Right. But they kept it. They didn't demolish it. Well, it was beautiful. Yeah. It was so beautiful, in fact, and such um, such an unusual uh, site that it was used and would gain international fame in 1984 when it was used as the setting of the hit film Ghostbusters. Yeah, this is where the Ghostbusters were, were based. Annie Potts sat behind the desk here at the, at the Hook and Ladder while they went off on adventures. And right now, at the time of recording, we should note that it, it is also undergoing restoration. So we now have a, a wide Varick Street and a wide 7th Avenue. Do we still have a freight terminal? Oh, right. Yes. That takes us into the 1920s. In fact, in, in 1928, the station, which was at this point referred to as the Hudson River Freight Station, was no longer needed uh, by the railroad because of other improvements that they were making and other additional stations that they were making along Manhattan's west side. The terminal was basically replaced by another newer terminal uh, that was operated up on Spring Street over on the west side, kind of like in the UPS area. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) But it's funny, you know, I actually had a hard time finding news reports about this. I guess people were really not that interested in like the the fact that this freight terminal was being abandoned it wasn't as beloved as saint john's chapel apparently <laughs> no and you know one piece that i did find in the times from november 29th 1928 mentions the station's discontinued use almost as a footnote for the headline is grand central gets vanderbilt statue Quote, a large bronze statue of Commodore Cornelius Vanderbilt will soon be seen in the embrasure on the south side of the Grand Central Terminal facing the automobile viaduct which leads from Park Avenue, according to an announcement made by the railroad yesterday. Until recently, it was the central figure in a bronze bas-relief 150 feet long and 31 feet high, the work of Albert de Groot, which embellished the front of the old Hudson River freight station at St. John's Park. And then at the very end of the article, the St. John's Park station, because of the railroad's improvements on the west side, will be abandoned. Oh, so there was more love for the statue of of the Commodore than there was uh, for the building in which he stood atop. That's right. 
and the land would be used for truck parking for a while before it was redeveloped into the new Holland Tunnels Manhattan Exit Circle. Wow, sexy. (laughs) (laughs) Because on top of everything else going on around here, in 1927, so, you know, about the same time as as moving the Commodore, Mm -hmm. the Holland Tunnel, which was named for Clifford Holland, its chief engineer, opened to traffic connecting Manhattan to New Jersey. So anybody who has taken the Holland Tunnel from New Jersey into Manhattan knows that you kind of get shot out in a kind of confusing (laughs) roundabout. You know, you're circling around, looking at signs uh, for the exits that say Uptown, Brooklyn, Canal Street East, that kind of thing. What you are actually circling chaotically atop the grave of old St. John's Park. New York's first private park. Today, it is literally nothing today. Today, it is a roundabout. You can walk over it. You and I just walked over it the other day. There is that, you know, pedestrian overpass. Mm -hmm. And you can look down at it and you'll see that it is a perfect square. I've, you know, driven around that a million times and I never realized I was really going around a square. But it's really something to consider. Um, It is one of the few areas of Tribeca that is legitimate, genuinely unattractive. (laughs) (laughs) But something that was attractive, just to keep this upbeat, that was happening in the 1920s, was something else happening um, in the modernization of Tribeca. And that was the construction of modern office towers and art deco towers at that. I'm just going to quickly mention two Mm -hmm. notable ones that are favorites. Of course, the Western Union Building, which is located at West Broadway and Worth Street, which was built in 1928 from 1928 to 30. It's notable for its colorful use of brick. The brick starts darker on the facade at the at the sidewalk level and gets lighter as it reaches into the sky. It's interesting because it was built for the Western Union Telegraph Company and it served the company until 1973. Today, it is still in the telecommunications business because it serves as a major internet hub and a co-location mm-hmm. center. So... You know, a lot of New York's communications still go through this building. And I'm hoping that you're going to bring up my one of my favorite buildings in New York City, the AT&T building, which is here in this, in this district as Absolutely. well. The AT&T long distance building, mm-hmm. just to be, because there are a couple different yes, AT&T uh-huh. buildings. Uh, yes, located just five or six blocks north of here, 24 Walker or 32 Avenue of the Americas. It's a 27-floor Art Deco building uh, that opened just a couple years after the the Western Union building. It opened in 1932, and it served AT&T's long-distance operations for many decades. And like the other building, today it still serves a similar function because uh, several communications companies are still based out of here, including iHeartMedia, and, and notably, when you walk in, you, anybody can walk mm-hmm. in, head in th- on the 6th Avenue side, and look at that beautiful mural on the wall yes. of telecommunications. And on the ceiling, oh, yeah. uh, these uh, various like depictions of the world. Art decoed out. 
And through all of this, through all of these different changes to the neighborhood, there is a, a consistency, uh, a, a butter and egg consistency, actually. <laughs> um, a milky consistency. <laughs> these various companies, these businesses surrounding the Washington market and these dry goods companies, these are still functioning and in healthy shape. Yeah, they were thriving in the 1930s and 1940s. Um, it was, in fact, the, the, the heyday of the dairy business, which isn't really that surprising considering all of the cold storage warehouses uh, that were really cutting edge that were constructed in the 1890s and turn of the century. According to the Tribeca West Historical Designation Report, over 90% of the butter, eggs, and cheese and other fresh food items consumed in metropolitan New York City passed through this area. Which is incredible. Basically, every egg in town came through here. <laughs> in every diner, in every corner of New York City, came through today's Tribeca neighborhood. The last 50 years of our story will see this neighborhood transformed more so than the 100 years before it. We'll get to the transformation of Tribeca after this. This episode is also brought to you by our presenting sponsor, WeWork, a platform for creators providing more than 200,000 members around the world with space, community, and services through both physical and digital offerings. WeWork's members are companies of all sizes and in all industries. Um, They're creators who run the gamut from entrepreneurs to freelancers, startups, artists, small businesses, even divisions of large corporations are members at WeWork. One of the WeWork spaces that Greg and I visited yesterday is the WeWork Soho South location, which is at 428 Broadway uh, at the corner of Broadway and Howard Street, just north of Canal. So very close to Tribeca. You can see it from your window. This is a gorgeous building. It was constructed in 1889. It's right here in the Soho area. So you look out the window and you see all this glorious cast iron all around you. Bogardus. Bogardus everywhere. And, and the, the space itself is fixed with um, elegant columns, with high ceilings and honey-colored wood floors, lots, lots and lots of natural light. It's a very natural and very welcoming, chill environment. Yeah, and a great place to work. And this is just one of 50 locations that they have in New York City. As part of our special partnership with WeWork, uh, WeWork is giving away a free hot desk trial membership to a Bowery Boys listener. You can sign up for that by going to we.co slash Bowery Boys Hot Desk. That's we.co slash Bowery Boys Hot Desk. And we'd like to thank WeWork for their support of the Bowery Boys. And now back to the show. The time has come to say goodbye to the Washington market. No. So it was, believe it or not, produce was still coming in as late as the 1950s. But in 1956, it was closed for retail sales. And in 1967, it was closed for good. And the whole operation was moved up to Hunts Point in the Bronx, where it still is today. In fact, all of New York's markets are now collect up at Hunts Point, including the Fulton Fish Market. And probably 90% of the city's eggs. Yeah, (laughs) Uh, most assuredly, if not even more. 
But if it moved up there in 1967, I'm assuming that one of the reasons was a rather large construction project that was happening back down where it used to be located. Right, right, right across the street, a colossal construction project known as the World Trade Center and the neighborhood Battery Park City. Construction of the North Tower began on August of 1968, and both of those structures would be open for business by 1972. These two stark structures casting a shadow over the old Washington Market area would be... Two shadows. Two shadows would be joined by a third in 1974, one of New York's most bizarre skyscrapers at 33 Thomas Street... Another brutalist structure. The most brutal. <laughs> the most indeed. brutal. And also one operated by AT&T. Yes, this is the AT&T Long Lines building. It has famously no windows. Uh, it's a telephone exchange building for cell- today used for cellular infrastructure, not for human habitation, but... Hey, it's Tribeca. You never know what's going to happen. Maybe they'll open it up for residential use at some point. But it towers over these northern streets, these this dry goods area that by this time, the 1970s, the purposes of these buildings had elapsed. So that's the northern part of Tribeca. But, but back down to Washington Market, mm-hmm. what were they doing with those kind of, you know, abandoned market structures? Yeah, because it wasn't just that one market building. It was several blocks of buildings that were associated with the market in mm-hmm. many different ways. Well, along comes the Washington Market Urban Renewal Plan. Several blocks of old historic buildings are completely cleared away. Okay. And many streets are actually demapped to make way for a low middle income housing development called Independence Plaza North of the most extreme early 70s architectural quality. However, and I'm very curious about this. I please wander around and, and just observe how they kind of stitched all this together. The development actually preserves a row of old 19th century townhouses. And there's even a couple little streets of Belgian blocks. So it you know, feels old New York-y a little bit, but then you look up and it's these, uh, these tall apartment complexes. But the point of the project was rather noble. Well, at least they were bringing in affordable housing to the neighborhood. Yes, affordable at the time, because the buildings have not been rent regulated for many, many years. They're back in the free market. And that is because the neighborhood that was Washington Market is now a trendier destination named Tribeca. Which brings us back to the naming of the, the neighborhood. Name, yes. Now, part of this has to do with what is happening in Soho at the same time. Soho, which was an abandoned loft warehouse district that starting in the 1960s was populated by artists who used these spaces. They tricked them out themselves and used them as studios and living spaces. In 1973, Soho got its designation as a historic district and was zoned for mixed use. It soon became the center of the American art scene. So that's happening in the late 60s and early 70s. And then meanwhile, here's Tribeca just a few blocks south of that. Well, you know, as is the instinct in the art world, you're always looking for something new and different. Mm -hmm. So they just, so the artists began looking on the other side of Canal Street. By 1974, according to an article in the New York Times, they already declared that Soho was over 
and had been taken over by wealthy artists, and that the true artists were going to, quote, the Washington Market area, also known as Tribeca, for Triangle Below Canal, were an illegal community of loft dwellers, much like the early Soho, has recently surfaced. So this claims that in 1974, these residents were already referring to the area as Tribeca? Let me read an article from the New York Times, April 30th, 1976. It's called Tribeca, though nobody's wild about that name. That's City Planning Commission short talk for Triangle Below Canal Street. But those who live there have other designations for it. Locale, (laughs) Washington Market, the Lower West Side, or even (laughs) So-So for south of Soho. It's becoming a magnet for the artists to shun the crowds, boutiques, and restaurants that now jazz up the Soho scene. That is 1976. Oh, my God. <laughs> Adam Gopnik has an excellent memoir that came out last year called At the Stranger's Gate. And he talks, It's uh, he spends a lot of time in Soho in that book, but mentions Tribeca. And he ta- writes about this little triangular park that separates Soho and Tribeca that's on right, Canal sure. Street. Tribeca's northern border was marked by a small triangular park. Not a park, really. Just a concrete space with benches bridging the two neighborhoods. It was smelly and rat-infested, with rats the size of small rabbits. This part was the most trafficked of places. It marked the border between Soho, then, quote, established, and Tribeca, emergent. And I'm sure that we have some listeners uh, who have their own opinions and their own memories of this transition, mm-hmm. the, the naming conventions, or even really w- to what the name Tribeca refers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Be it a park, <laughs> a, a particular triangle we haven't even mentioned. A set of blocks or whatever. Um, but whatever the case, that rat-infested triangular concrete <laughs> space could not block the chic cachet from spilling down here southward into Tribeca. Jumping uh, over canal. Jumping over canal. Art collectives, avant-garde music spaces like Roulette Intermedium. It was a noted art bookstore at 112 Franklin Street called Franklin Furnace. There were nightclubs that were attractive to artists like the Mud Club, which was on the other side of Broadway, but associated with Tribeca over there in Cortland Alley. There was the club area on Hudson Street, and then that would evolve by the 1990s into even larger clubs like Shelter, Vinyl, with its famous Body and Soul parties. All of these were in Tribeca. The chic cachet cascading down (laughs) from Soho. Art, fashion, high culture, nightlife. Tribeca becomes a destination by the early 80s. It seems so similar to the Soho story, and yet the vibe here in Tribeca is different. Absolutely. Thanks to places like uh, the Odeon Restaurant, which was opened by Keith McNally in 1980 and then made famous and really branded the neighborhood because of Jay McInerney's book, Bright Lights, Big City, the original cover. Do you remember this? Did you read it when you were younger? It has the Odeon and it has the World Trade Center on it. In 1987, New York Magazine wrote, quote, Tribeca 
is not Soho and probably never will be. There are galleries, restaurants, and lofts, but Tribeca doesn't have a Benetton, a Rizzoli, or a Penny Whistle, so the suburban couples in their weekend leathers stay away. And that's why it's one of the city's quiet neighborhoods, one that leaves you alone with the variety of ghosts from the city's past. Wait a second. Suburban couples in their, quote, weekend leather? (laughs) Weekend leathers. You know, it was the 80s. Everyone's wearing, like, colored leather with fringe and but I guess that's only what they're on the yeah. weekends well the most famous resident here in Tribeca even by this time was the actor Robert De Niro now in 1989 the year before he made Goodfellas he opened the Tribeca Film Center at Greenwich and Franklin and then he also started with producer Jane Rosenthal, Tribeca Productions, which was a film company. Which seems totally in character for the neighborhood today. But really, this was the character that he set. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of a, a, a risk that he took to really open this and, and bring film locations back to New York City. But hold on, was Tribeca even protected in any way was it a was it a historic district no no soho had gotten its designation in the 1970s but it wouldn't come along for tribeca until 1991 and 1992 when four historic districts north south east and west would be formed to protect the the unique diversity of architecture in this neighborhood i think those those historic districts were designated just in time mm-hmm because we wouldn't have the Tribeca today without them. With those, without those protections. Now, the attack on the World Trade Center on September 11th, 2001, severely affected the neighborhood of Tribeca. I mean, not only were many structures actually damaged in the attack, but in the aftermath, many places were closed for months. I mean, streets were used for emergency services. And, you know, it just took forever to get people back to this neighborhood. It really held the scars of this incident for, uh, for an incredibly long time. And that's really when the city stepped in and tried to promote the businesses in the neighborhood. Yeah, not just here, but in the financial district and over in Battery Park City. And New Yorkers did come and they did assist by going to these places, by frequenting the restaurants, by shopping and bringing the neighborhood back to life. But one of the greatest contributions, I would say, is back to our Tribeca resident, Robert De Niro. With his co-producer, Jane Rosenthal, and with Craig Hatzkoff, as a way to bring people back to Tribeca, they created the Tribeca Film Festival. It was announced two months after the September 11th attacks. It debuted on March 8th, 2002. It brought hundreds of movie stars into, into the neighborhood, a, new, a renewed focus onto Tribeca, uh, a film retrospective curated by Martin Scorsese, and the film premiere of Star Wars, Attack of the Clones in 2002. Another notable event for the neighborhood. (laughs) But this is a turning point to to me. I mean, now there's a lot of film production companies in Mm -hmm. in Tribeca. And it's like the glitz and the glamour of all the movie stars that passed through stuck to Tribeca in well, a way. And it seems like the Tribeca Film Festival is such a, an integral part to the city's cultural calendar. Yeah. It's oh, yeah. It's amazing to think that it's only really been around for, you know, 16 years. And because of September 11th. Many people who don't know that much about New York may only know the neighborhood of Tribeca because of the Tribeca Film Festival. Today's Tribeca is still very sleek and trendy and a very highly prized place to live and go out. 
Luckily, those historic protections saved some great architecture with some room for some wacky newcomers, like <laughs> the building that I think many of us call the Jenga building. Ah, yes. Uh, 56 Leonard, which was completed last year and basically looks like a massive glass version of a, a very sophisticated Jenga game. <laughs> and we should note that the additions, such as the Jenga building, that are obviously out of character of the neighborhood, <laughs> yeah. do not fall in any of the four historical districts. <laughs> yes. But in a sense, they're joining the club, joining Tribeca's extraordinary architectural beauty. For illustrations and photos of the particular beauty that is Tribeca, head to our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com. You can also join us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'd like to give a big shout out to those who support us on Patreon. For a small monthly donation, you'll get a bunch of extra stuff from the Bowery Boys, uh, an extra podcast uh, once or twice a month, and exclusive and early invites to live events, including the one that we just had just this last week in in Williamsburg. Yes, thank you to those who came out to our Williamsburg trivia night that was hosted at WeWork South Williamsburg. It was such a blast to meet everybody, and our patrons were the first to have access to those invites. So for more on how you can become a patron and support the show, head to patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Bowery Boys. We could not make this show without your support. So thank you so much. And by the way, we are trying to maybe do a more regular trivia night because uh, they're an awful lot of fun. So, you know, we're out there searching for a venue. Maybe it'll be in Tribeca. Oh, maybe in the Jenga building. <laughs> yes. Or the American Express stables. <laughs> so thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, essential plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.